Hope that you had a, a good week. And again, happy Father's Day to the dads that are out there. Uh, being dads, it's, it's a wonderful responsibility that definitely has its ups and downs through life. There's definitely some things that have happened being a dad that I don't necessarily care for. Generally, cleaning up puke or changing dirty diapers. And, you know, I know not all dads do that. But I, I was one that definitely did, and it wasn't my favorite thing, but it's something that you do as a dad. But I think the benefits of being a dad far outweigh those times that you might want to throw up yourself going through some of those things. Things like dad jokes, being able to relish in those. Uh, things like embarrassing your children as they get older. Always look forward to those types of things. I, I was close. I almost wore socks with sandals today <laughs> just to make that statement, that as a dad, we can pull that off. Dads are usually viewed as the disciplinarian of the home. Have you ever heard the phrase, just wait until your father gets home when you were growing up? Getting in trouble as a kid, it's kind of a given. Hopefully you were able to have a home life where it was more of a safe environment and you could learn from your mistakes, from those consequences of your actions in, in a healthy way. But sometimes you would get in trouble as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult with the law. Maybe you had run-ins with the police and maybe you had to go to court or things like that. It's definitely a difference. You know, if you think back in your life, have you ever been in trouble with the law? I can only remember one time that I had to go to court for me. So about when I was 17 and I got in a little fender bender, I think might have had to pay a fine or my mom and dad did. Um, and I had to go to a safety, a driving safety course for, for a little bit. Pretty fair ruling all in all. But maybe you've been to court and the ruling wasn't fair. It wasn't in your favor. You felt this type of injustice. Normally that kind of thing happens in the court of parents, where you're brought up on some trumped-up charges, and your siblings are ganging up and saying that you did something when you didn't do it. It's a common cry of foul in my home. It wasn't me. I didn't do this. And of course, the famous saying of maybe Scobie did it our dog that we had for about six months here in Iowa. My kids got really good at being able to deny who took the candy, who broke something. You know, how do you handle those times when you're being judged unfairly? When things aren't going in your favor or going your way? Do you get defensive? Do you get bitter? Argumentative? Are you just silent and take it on the chin? We're going to face unfair things in life from time to time. I think it's important to know how to handle that from a biblical perspective. This morning we're going to continue in our series of Luke, uh, and we're going to look at the trials that Jesus goes through, trials that you can easily see are unfair to say the least. And I found it interesting to look at Jesus' demeanor through all of this, how he responds to these types of things. 
So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke 22. I'm going to begin in verse 63 and then read through verse 25 of chapter 23, covering the trials according to Luke. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the, man, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing, deserves, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Father, 
Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given us. Lord, it is a humbling word, to say the least. And I pray that you would allow us to rest in your truths today as we look at what happened to Jesus. Pray that you would clear our hearts and minds and for your glory to shine through. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so I left this small section here about Jesus being mocked for this message for kind of an important comparison, a little visual, if you will. It's interesting to me to make a connection to how they were blaspheming Jesus. And then the chief priests basically will criminalize Jesus for blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you are speaking profanely against sacred things. It is irreverent speech against God. And many times, it's going to be treated as something that appears to be subjective, based on that person. Maybe what I consider blasphemous or profane against God, you may not, and vice versa. And how we understand those types of things. It's not the the best approach, but we do see this throughout history all over the place. If people have a different, differing viewpoint than you do, we just cry blasphemy, we cry heresy. Luke calls what the soldiers are doing to Jesus blasphemous because they are irreverently dealing with the Christ. They are speaking falsely against him. They are mocking him. Leaders will say that Jesus is blasphemous because he is claiming to be the Son of God, which with everything that they have known up to this point for their understanding of Scripture definitely would sound blasphemous. They hold to the Shema, our Lord the God, our Lord the God is one. There is one God. So how can this Jesus be claiming to be the Son of God? When we look back through the history of Israel in the early Exodus wanderings, you had a man that was stoned for blaspheming, the God, for blaspheming God's name. You look to John 8 where Jesus is almost stoned for saying, before Abraham, I am. A direct reference to Exodus 3, when God gives his name of Yahweh. I am who I am. Jesus here, within this section, is kind of just toying with the leaders. He's not giving direct affirmation, but he is challenging them with these attitudes, with these thoughts of who he is. And we see, again, we see this attitude all over the place. You think of some of the other faiths. You can be stoned, you can be killed in the Muslim faith for, you know, being blasphemous against Allah, Muhammad, speaking ill of them. And in many ways, this can seem like it's a he said, she said type of argument. Or my God is bigger than your God, or my belief is better than your belief. To the, th- to the point that things would get to the point of absurdity. You know, with both of these claims of blasphemy on either side of of an issue, there needs to be an absolute truth. Now, people's beliefs, or people have different beliefs, um, 
and they will always say that the way that I believe is absolutely true, right? We've heard this type of thing before. I've encountered this in different types of evangelism as I've talked to different people with way out there claims. But they believe it wholeheartedly. And the key with absolute truth is it is true whether you believe it or not. As Christians, as believers, we understand and we believe that God is truth, that he is the creator, that he is supreme, that he is sovereign. He is the source of truth. Even if we get things wrong in the way we believe, he is still that source. Now you think back 20 years ago. Now in the big things, sure, we still believe what those tenets are. But I don't believe exactly the same way that I did 20 years ago because I've grown in my understanding. I've grown in, in how I understand the word. And God has revealed himself so much more to me over that time. It's not earth-shattering type of changes, but it's not always exactly the same. You know, we hold, like I said, to those tenets. We believe that Jesus is the one who died for our sins, paying the debt that we could not pay, that he was raised from the dead, that he is seated at the right hand in glory, that he will come again one day. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, you know, if, if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. Our faith is futile. We're to be the most pitied of all people. Understanding truth is important. And I'm starting our, the message out this way because we're going to see some contrasts today when it comes to the truth of God versus the truth of the mob or mob justice. I also think within this section here, um, verses 63 through 65, we see an interesting contrast to what Peter was doing and maybe going through kind of connecting it to the last message that we went through in Luke. You know, maybe Peter saw this mocking, this treatment of Jesus, and he doesn't want that to happen to him, so he's avoiding the conflicts when the mob becomes restless. Rather than standing up for the truth of God, he denies Jesus. Standing for the truth of God is a very important understanding that we're going to see today. You know, the hard times for Jesus are just starting. He is being mocked for being a prophet. Tell us who hits you. Now, the label, the title of being a prophet is not new to this section. Back in Luke chapter 7, the Pharisees are mocking Jesus. You call yourself a prophet, yet you don't know this woman who is, who, who is touching you. In chapter 11, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees' fathers and how they killed all of the prophets. And then he makes that connection in chapter 13 to how you will kill me as well in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is surrounded by a mob of people who are getting restless. And for Peter, maybe he was looking for safety rather than the truth. But Jesus has to walk through this truth. We're going to face different types of situations that will be hard in our life. When we're faced with those situations, will we stand for the truth or will we cower away fleeing for safety? As Jesus goes through these trials, I think that they draw out some very important facts for us to be able to see. Going through the trial 
shows that Jesus was an innocent man. Innocent from the accusations that are being made against him. And then we can make that connection to the deeper understanding of innocence in terms of free from sin. And then what that means for us with the sacrifice that he has made. Jesus is innocent. From a human standpoint, from a believer's standpoint, this draws out confidence that we have in our Savior and what the Word says about him. We can see clearly that he is unfairly being tried as an innocent person. Even the secular Pilate sees this. Even Herod sees this. But the Jewish leaders don't want to see this. They are blinded by their own desires, by their own wills, by their own selfishness to want to hang on to power, a blindness that is crippling to a person. I don't know about you, but I've seen this same type of blindness around when I try to talk to people about the gospel. People that just, they don't want to hear. They don't want to listen. They don't want to know the truth. They want to stay in what they're doing. They want to do things their way. How many times can this also be us in our life? Well, we don't want to know the truth, but we want to continue on doing what we're doing in the world. Today, I think Jesus shows us some very important things in how to respond in what he went through. First and foremost, I want to continue to tie together the closeness of these events. This is coming right off of the time of the garden, spending time in agony, spending time in prayer, where he is aligning himself with the will of God. We have to understand that point. He knows the truth. He knows the will of God, and he is content and at peace with that as he faces this mocking, as he faces these beatings, as he faces this sham of a trial. The deeper things behind all of this is the will of God, and he is going to stick to that no matter what the people say, no matter what they do to him, no matter how they accuse him. He is, he is depending on the Father through this trial and hardship. The will of the Father is for him to go to the cross. When you know the will of God in your life, it gives you confidence. It gives you strength. You know, there's many times that I have conversations with youth group members, just like our graduates today. I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. I don't know what this means. There's many times in life we're going to face hardships where we can't see what the will of God is in those moments. And as I had said in the last message in Luke, we need to be in constant prayer over those things, figuring out what that will is because it gives us confidence in the promises of God that he will be there. And Jesus is resolved in that, and he is strengthened by that to stand before this mob, to stand before Pilate, to stand before Herod, hold, firmly holding on to the truth of God. Standing for the truth can get you killed. It puts you at odds with the world. The world is going to hate you. But we are to stand firm on the promises and truth of God, sharing those. We're not to be jerks about it. We're to do it in a loving, compassionate way. We are called to abide in him. You know, Jesus 
is doing this through the trial because he is resolved to the will. And as I have mentioned quite a bit, that he is standing in the truth. I say that because he doesn't say a lot in this section. This section shows a lot of what is happening around him. But we see how Jesus handles this. You know, he brings out some of the facts. You know, what, what's the use of telling you guys this over and over again because you're not going to listen anyway? The Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand of the Father soon. He doesn't deny that he is the Christ. So again, there's a lot of commentary of what's happening and how Jesus is responding. But even through the hardships and trials, he knows that the season is going to be short and that he is going to be with the Father soon. Romans speaks about this. Do not get overtaken by these, these trials, these hardships that are happening in your life. They're temporary. It's short. Rejoice because you're going to be with the Father as a believer. That's the blessed hope that we have. So that as we go through these hardships and trials, just like Job, we're able to say, blessed be the name of God. So we see Jesus resolved to do the will of the Father, standing for the truth. The second thing that I see here with Jesus is that he shows us discernment and what that means. He knows what the crowd wants, and he still preaches the truth. He knows, even if he knows that they won't hear it. And I find this first exchange kind of interesting. As it leads off with that question, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he goes right back at them, knowing their hearts, saying, you're not going to believe me if I do tell you, so what's the point? Their minds were already made up. They were going to press him until they can find something against him. You know, when they close with, what further proof do we need? Seemingly, they have what they need in terms of uh, him being the son of God and the blasphemy that it surrounds that, as the other gospels talk about. You know, I don't know if you've found this out in your life. There's, there's not a lot that you can do with people that just won't listen. When their hardness is so deep, there's not a lot that can cut through that at times. That's where you need to lean in to the will of God and this issue of discernment, knowing when to speak and what not to speak. You know, even with his, you say that I am or you have said it, it's not a direct affirmation, but it is assumed or it is to be taken as such. You know, with these people, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that they're going to lie, cheat, steal, do whatever they can to hold on to their power, whatever they can to eliminate him from their life. They lie about Jesus' teachings about Caesar. They talk about him being a king to try to placate to, to Pilate, to try to bring up some more dissension between him and Rome. They're going to expend all of their efforts in order to hang on to self in order to get Jesus out of their lives so that they can continue to do what they want to do. How does that look in the mirror for us? How is our hearing? You know, we publicly profess that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the king, but do we have the ears to hear when he calls us 
to be ambassadors, to do his will? Do we have eyes to see those in this world that he is calling us to share the gospel message with? Do we have the conviction of the Spirit to repent from those times that we're being selfish, self-seeking? Discernment is a gift of the Holy Spirit that allows a believer to have wisdom and truth, understanding the true nature of a person, a situation, or a thing. Sometimes it can just happen automatically, just like kind of like an intuition type of thing where you just know something, right? But discernment is greater than just that gut reaction because it deals with matters from the Spirit. It's dealing with the truths of God. And Jesus knows what to say and what not to say. He's selective in what he says to the mob. Even more so with Pilate. And then he is silent around Herod. Remember Herod, he is the one that was curious about Jesus. He wanted him to do some signs and miracles for him. He, was, he wanted to treat Jesus kind of like a circus act. He's also one that had John the Baptist beheaded. I think one of the hardest things with discernment is understanding when to be silent, when not to speak. And as I look at this exchange between Herod and Jesus, I, you just have nothing but utmost respect for what Jesus does. Because I know if it was me, if in my flesh, if I was in that type of situation, I think I would be speaking up. At the very least, I would be seething with rage and anger about this person in front of me. But Jesus is silent before Herod and his questions. Herod shows contempt, more mocking, dresses him, puts some kingly clothes on him, and sends him back to Pilate. But, you know, I really, I prayed a lot about this type of discernment this week and this issue of keeping silent. And why? Why would you do something like that? And there was conflict in my mind with this scenario. Again, I know if it was me, I would probably deem Herod an enemy. I don't know if Jesus would or did. He does have some colorful language for Herod back in chapter 13 where he calls him a fox. Now, he's not saying that Herod was sly or cunning or cute and just fun to watch around, run around and stuff like that. A fox was an unclean animal, so he was referencing how unclean Herod was. You know, Herod, he was viewed as false, having false piety kind of like an unsavory puppet from Rome. He was trying to get in Rome's back pocket a lot of times. So he wasn't somebody that was respected as a leader. He was somebody who allowed his daughter to do a shameful dance in public, and he beheaded John. All in all, probably a pretty grotesque type of human being. And it got me thinking, again, how and why would Jesus be silent? I mean, even if he was an enemy, doesn't the Bible teach us that Jesus died for his enemies? Wouldn't Herod be one of those that he died for as well? And very early on, the Spirit took me to a passage in Matthew chapter 7, and I continued to scour different things throughout the text, 
But as I continue to come back to this, I grew in my understanding of this passage. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Pigs, another unclean animal. You know, Jesus challenges the leaders frequently in their thinking, in their interpretations, and their beliefs. He calls out their blindness, their lack of belief, their lack of hearing. But here with Herod, he does not do that. I believe that Herod was pretty far gone, especially as it describes the the friendship with Pilate. It shows the distance that he is from God, the hardness of heart to truly not want to hear anything. And it is shown in how he was treating Jesus. I think another thing about discernment here, and perhaps this is something that Luke is is drawing out as he writes this, where both Herod and Pilate, even though they're secular, even though they have nothing to do with God, they both find Jesus innocent. And this reflects on the cultural impact of two or three witnesses and how this impacts accusations, how this impacts trials. Jesus would have two people that would declare him innocent. This is a call back to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, which says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Within that section of Deuteronomy, it's also the portion of Scripture that talks about how if somebody falsely accuses another person, then the punishment would be put on that person. This is the eye for an eye passage. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes that passage and he teaches those those listeners about loving your enemy, about turning the other cheek. And I look about I look at what's happening here to Jesus as he is being falsely accused by these people. How he is practicing what he has preached. How he is turning the other cheek and how he is using wisdom and discernment to fulfill the will of God. The wisdom and discernment that Jesus shows strikes awe in me, in my heart and mind. The third point that I want us to focus on this morning is how the will of man is opposite to the will of God. Now, this is illuminated in verse 25, but I want to back up just a little bit and reread beginning in verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. It is the will of the people, or the mob, to crucify Jesus. Now, a disclaimer, it is the will of God for Jesus to go to the cross. But the intentions of the men, of the mob, for Jesus to be crucified are different than the will of God for Jesus to go to the cross. And therein lies the heart 
of this issue. The will of the flesh will always be warring with the things of God. They will be battling over what is true. The will of the flesh will oftentimes seek self-preservation, selfishness, pleasure, narcissism. The truth, quote-unquote, that the mob brings in terms of this case could not hold up to the light, so much so that the secular, godless judges do not find any guilt in him. So they cry out loudly. They throw a tantrum so that they can get their way. They played on Pilate's situation with Rome, how if he had made another mistake, then he would probably be the one that was being killed. He couldn't handle another riot happening under his watch, so he placates to their demands. Well, it's a good thing that this type of situation only happens in Jesus' day, and the mobs can't have justice today, right? They cry out for Barabbas to be released. Their will is to release a guilty man while condemning an innocent man. They call what is good evil and what is evil good. When we focus on the battle of wills in our own life, a lot of times we think back to when before we were Christians, where we were doing what we wanted, where we lived in the world, we were a part of the world, and we fulfilled our own desires. Then Jesus comes into your life and changes everything around. He shakes things up. You know, as I talk to people, as I evangelize to people, that's one of their biggest obstacles. I don't want to change the way I'm living. I want to continue to do what I want to do. But for those of us who have heard the message and believed, we understand the damage and the destruction of sinful living. We understand the issue of sin, the punishment that is owed, and the lack of our own ability to save ourselves. Where we are humbly grateful to learn of a loving God who would send his son to pay the price that we could not pay. But even as believers, we still need to be on guard for the battle of wills. We look at Romans 7, and we look at the the doo-doo chapter. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. We're faced with this battle constantly, where the struggle becomes where we need to die to ourselves each and every day. So for us as believers, we need to stand for the truth. Unlike Pilate, who famously asks what is truth, he is swayed by the mob. He knows that Jesus is innocent, but he does not stand or uphold that truth. Even though he finds him innocent, he was still going to punish Jesus. He was still going to beat an innocent man. But ultimately, he rejects the truth and gives Jesus over to be crucified. He did not stand for truth. He does not stand for God because he does not know God. However, we know the truth. We know God. And there's going to be plenty of trials. There's going to be plenty of times. There's going to be plenty of opportunities in this life where we will either stand for the truth or we will flee for safety. We need to be careful with this. We need to be people who abide in the word so that we understand what the truth is. 
that it is God's truth, that it's not our preferences, that it's not subjective truth, that it's not just what we want to be the truth, but that we are standing firmly on his promises and his word. For that, we need to align ourselves with the will of God so that we could be firmly rooted in that. Secondly, I think that we need to discern better. For me, discernment a lot of times, the way it is fleshed out is where the Spirit is guiding me rather than my own eyes, ears, and desires. When I do it well, I'm able to see others with the eyes of Christ. I'm able to lean in to those small, still voices, those nudges when God tells me to move. I'm able to rebuke falsehoods and be strong for the Lord. When I don't do it well, I'm putting my foot in my mouth. I'm unloving in what I say and do. I'm blinded to what I want to be the truth. Or I'm just silent because of bitterness. Discernment finds the truth in the matters that we face because it draws us to the word of God. We are discerning what is of God and what is not, searching for that truth. And with the understanding that God is truth, we should always be seeking him. Discernment should be a regular, regular exercise that we practice as believers. And finally, we need to understand how our wills of the flesh are contrary to the will of the Father. As good, as noble, as kind-hearted as we might think our will or our deeds are, they are nothing but filthy rags if we are counting on them for righteousness. Whether that's for salvation or whether that's in ministry and in our sanctification process. We need to be aware that we have to die to ourselves daily and we need to put on Christ as we walk in the Spirit, wearing the armor of God. Life can be a struggle for sure because the world will try to rip us out of the Father's hands. It will battle us at every turn. You know the battles that you face from day to day, the personal struggles that you have, that you walk through. Your strength comes from the Lord. But we are not meant to walk this battle alone. We have the Spirit within us. And as we talked about a few weeks ago with Peter, when Jesus says, when you return, strengthen the brothers. We have one another to build each other up, to equip one another, to draw each other back to the truth of the Word of God. My prayer is that you have people that you can walk alongside of life with to keep you accountable, to grow in your faith. Because there's going to be unfair trials and judgments that come our way. There's going to be mob voices in the world and in our heads trying to steer us, true, steer us away from the truth, to pull us to our own desires, our own selfishness, rather than looking to him to satisfy. Today, I think Jesus shows us a lot in terms of how to handle trials and God emphasizes his innocence in order to give us confidence and hope as a believer in the perfect one who died for our sins. Let us praise him today. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these trials today, 
It is amazing to understand what Jesus went through for our sakes. As we continue to look at this Passion Week, I just pray that you would continue to open up our hearts, soften our attitudes towards your truths, that you would give us a deeper understanding of sin in our life. And Lord, that we can have a greater perspective on the grace that we have received. Lord, to put those things in perspective, we have to understand the ugliness of sin. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to convict us, to repent of those struggles, to repent of those times where we're not standing for your truth but instead selfishly desiring our own way. Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill us to give us wonderful discernment as we abide in you and you alone. Continue to give us the words to say to a darkened world that doesn't want to hear you. pray for those opportunities, Lord, that you would soften hearts, that you would give us those moments to share the blessed hope of your Son. Lord, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to come to worship you. I pray a blessing on all the fathers here. Lord, that they would be godly examples and role models for their children. Lord, that they would love their wives as you have loved the church. And Lord, that you would continue to work in us, teaching us to be men of God, spiritual leaders of, this, of our homes. Help us to guide in your truths. Help us to love with your love. Lord, we thank you for every day that you have given us. May we treat them as blessings that they are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.